It depends on your age, I guess, or your spirit, or who babysat you after school and how much they liked R&B. Or maybe you lived in Detroit or in the Washington, D.C. area. But if you're lucky, you know the voice and the eyes because Donnie Simpson, the great Donnie Simpson, is your guy. We're back with Video Soul. I'm Donnie Simpson. Donnie Simpson, thank you so much for joining us today on Black Girl Songbook. This is the place and the space where Black women in music receive the credit we are due. And I'm your host, Danielle Smith. Well, it is my honor. I always feel like we can see your true feelings when you're interviewing Mm -hmm. people. You're always so professional. You always know everything that you're supposed to know ahead of time. But you can never disguise the love that you have for the music. Am I wrong? Oh, no, you're absolutely right about that. I love music. And I love people. And I think that that's that's what you feel. My genuine love for people. I mean, I feel it. So listen, I'm going to go back and tape after this a most ridiculously flattering introduction, like the best you have ever heard. We're going to talk about (laughs) the fact that you've been working in radio for five, five decades, that you are one of the very first VJs ever, ever. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about you being in the Radio Hall of Fame, the R&B Hall of Fame. In October of 2015, you were inducted into the R&B Music Hall of Fame, the first TV host ever inducted. But we all wanted you to be on this show for a couple of reasons. One is just because of the many great interviews that you've done with uh, Black women in music. But before we even get to talking about your amazing interviews with like Sade, your amazing interviews with Aretha Franklin, Janet Jackson, Vesta, like we could continue. I want to get to know Donnie Simpson a little bit because we have a great story consultant here named Taj. And she says to me, that you started out in radio at the age of 15. I need to know what was happening like the week before your first day. Oh, wow. How, what, how did you get from just being Donnie Simpson around the way boy from the neighborhood to working <laughs> in radio at 15 years old? Yeah. Well, I'm going to take you back more than a week. I mean, to tell that story, I'll take you back a little further than that. Okay. Um, I guess it would be probably three months, <laughs> but, um, I, I grew up in Detroit and I worked, my mother owned a record shop from the time I was 12. Hmm. And so I was always in that record shop, you know, again, around music all my yeah. life. And, uh, but people used to come out of my mother's record shop and say, God, you sound like a DJ. You know, you ought to be a DJ. I'm 15 years old. I mean, what was your mom's name and what was the name of the store? My mother's name is Dorothy Simpson, and it was Simpson's Record Shop. Simpson's Record Shop is a gem in the Detroit community. It was there for 50 years. On one side of the store, there were records, R&B, gospel, blues. And depending on the decade, you would see albums or cassettes, eight tracks or CDs. But on the other side of all of that music was candy. Yes, Charleston Chews, Chicka Sticks, 
BB Bats, Jolly Ranchers, all of it. Simpsons Records, it was the kind of place where, according to a 2012 story about Mrs. Simpson in the Detroit Metro Times, she was like a mama to everybody, not just to her own kids, but mama of the whole neighborhood. Yeah, Simpsons Record Shop. And um, so, and, and I was so proud of her. I mean, you know, my, my dad had a uh, rent a cop company, you mm. know. Uh, yeah, they patrolled the supermarkets and stuff like that. So, you know, both my parents were entrepreneurs, you know, small time entrepreneurs. But um, yeah, so anyway, I was in a record shop and people would come in and say, you, you ought to be a DJ. And it was in one ear out the other. I wanted to be a Baptist minister. That was my first ambition in life. Wow. And uh, somewhere along the line, George Clinton turned me out, and here I am. Why do I always forget George Clinton used to be a staff songwriter at Motown? I blame it on, on the phone. Uh, one day, my mother had a live broadcast with a local DJ. He came in, and, you know, they had one of these. It, it was a, like a mobile studio. They just drove up, parked out front, did the show from the record store for two hours. And I went into that studio and his, his name was Al Perkins. And I'm sitting there, I'm watching Al do his show. And it was, he actually had me on the air. He let me do the specials. And we got the Temptations Greatest Hits on sale this hour for $1.99 or whatever it was. I can turn the gray sky blue make it rain. I'm sitting there, I'm watching him. He's got his headphones on. He's patting his feet and grooving to the music. And, I was like, man, I could do that. I could do that. That was the very day I fell in love with radio. And three months later, I was on the air. They put me on on weekend doing uh, uh, a three-hour show. And they eventually fired the guy who worked eight to midnight, asked me to sit in for him for a week to give them time to find someone. And I sat there for seven and a half years. It wasn't just, though, about you being in the right place at the right time. What kind of energy were you bringing to the station? Well, back it up a little bit. Uh, I joined a group. They had a group called the WJLB Soul Teen Reporters, which was uh, this group was one student from each public high school in Detroit. They came into the radio station once a week and recorded a little 60 second spiel about what was going on at their school. You know, uh, we got. Uh, a bake sale next Tuesday. Seniors don't forget cap and gown measurements next Friday. You know, we beat Pershing High 78 of 54. And <laughs> the lovers of the week are and the song of the week is, you know, that kind of thing. I love and, this, though. OK. And I got so popular from that because I was this kid with this heavy voice. And these things only ran once a day. For, and again, 60 seconds, 90 seconds long. But because I'm this kid with this heavy voice. Uh, I got more popular than most of the DJs <laughs> from doing this little report. So that, so Donnie, can so, I interrupt you for one second and say, yeah, sure, of course. From where comes the voice? Does your dad have the voice? Like, no. does your grandpa? Where is uh, the voice coming from? No, you know, I, I, my dad didn't have it, but it's funny. Because my the rest of them, all my boys, all my brothers, we all have this voice. <laughs> Wait a so, minute. Your brothers I, you know, have the Donnie Simpson voice? 
Oh yeah. yeah. Do they know? Yeah. Do they know it's the Donnie Simpson voice, or do they just well, consider no, they it their it voice? <laughs> it's their voice. Yeah, and and me and my oldest brother look like twins. We look just like. Now I have a twin brother. We don't look like twins, but me and my oldest brother look like twins. His name is Calvin. We're all fascinated by the voice, Mr. Simpson, as you know. So my question is this. When did your voice change? Yeah, it was uh, the summer between seventh and eighth grade. Uh, I'll never forget it. I mean, and, and this is why, because in seventh grade, I was in a choir and uh, I was the only male first soprano, wow. which I loved because I got to sit with all the girls. <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> I cannot. But I come back after that summer and I'm this baritone and then I got to sit with the boys now. And uh, it was over. Yeah, it just changed that summer. It just got, you know, heavy voice and, uh, you know, uh, so it didn't come from my father. Well, it came from my father. It came from God. <laughs> yes. Yes. It did. It's so distinctive. And I feel like if you were lucky, you grew up hearing. Uh, Donnie Simpson's voice either on the radio, but then it was when for me, BET. Yeah. What was the leap for you? Did you always have an ambition to be like a like a nationwide, like a a huge star, like in the community? Yeah. If you're of my age, a certain age, I mean, we saw you every day. What a blessing. Yeah, well, you know, I, I didn't necessarily have that ambition. Others saw that in me. One guy in particular, uh, he's like my best friend in radio. His name is Claude Young, the big soul rocker. He was on the air before me. And, uh, but there was this Elton John song that we were both in the Elton John. And he said, man, this song always reminds me of you. And the song, he says, I'm going to be a teenage child, no matter how long it takes. A motivating supersonic king of the scene. And uh, so, you know, the fact that he saw me that way was very encouraging. I didn't know that it would be from television, uh, even though I had a TV show when I was in Detroit. I can't even remember the name of it. I, I mean, it was so bad. My mother wouldn't even watch it. <laughs> oh, it was no. a dance show. <laughs> no. It was, yeah, it only lasts. The run couldn't have been a month. <laughs> so, and I, but I would love to have tape of that now. I would love to see that. I have no video of it. Uh, so that would be really cool to see me at, you know, I had, I don't even think I was married then. And it seems like I was always married, but I, so I must have been 18. You know, maybe at most 19. We were married at 19. So, um, but so I moved to D to Washington, D.C. And then when uh, BET happened, you know, that, that whole, I mean, it was just an explosion for me. And, you know, I almost didn't do it, to be honest with you, Daniel. I, I uh, when they first called me about doing it, I've always been very protective of image because that's all I have to sell. Yes. No, I can't give you 20 rebounds a night. You know, I mean, I'm just image. That's it. And so I'm very protective of the things I get involved with. You know, I always want them to be top shelf, always. And 
BET in its infancy wasn't a very pretty baby, <laughs> you know, mm, and uh, that's interesting. I thought about it. I thought about it for two days and it came down to this, that this is our first black television network. If you have something to offer it, you have to do it. Decision made. Let's go. And I'm so glad I did. Oh, man. You know, I mean, that thing enriched my life in ways that, I mean, it's just, you know, to hear what you said about me, that we watched you every night. I mean, you know, it's amazing. And, and you don't think about these things when you're in it, but you're, you think about them much later, you know, and uh, it was just, uh, it was an incredible experience. I literally remember just coming home from school or work, depending on my particular age. And it seemed to me that you just would turn on BET and Donnie Simpson would just be there. Yeah. Announcing well, videos or show, interviewing. It, yes. It was a two hour show, but it ran three times a day. Yes. That's so what I'm saying. It was always there. Yeah. And it was their flagship show. I look back on it now and what an honor um, to have been the face of our first black television network. You know, I'm, I'm so glad I made that decision to do it, that I didn't overthink it. I want to know about your interview style because I don't see the cue cards. Do you have a Taj and a Trudy in the back uh, giving you information? Do you, I mean, what are we doing? Is it just the fact that you're born and raised in Detroit? And so you automatically know more about music than the rest of us. What's the story? <laughs> no well you know it's interesting uh because like in your introduction it's funny the way you perceive it that always you said something about me always knowing everything mm-hmm. before or being prepared mm-hmm. it was the total opposite i was never prepared and and that was by design for me um every artist we ever had on video soul the producers would give me a biography and a list of questions and i would say thank you and i'd trash him <laughs> i wouldn't even oh, look no. at it. never <laughs> never 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 ever 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 because i was afraid that if i read the bio then chances are i'm going to ask you something that you've been asked a thousand times wow. before and i don't want that all i needed to be is real is natural that's the thing that connects us all when it's real, it's an interview. I'm supposed to be getting to know you. I don't want to know everything about you. I want to learn some things about you now as we sit here, you know, um, and that's what makes it so natural to me is, you know, and I know one thing that we both have is the love for music. I mean, if you're an artist, yes. you know, then we have that in common. And um, so, you know, so my interview style was, None. <laughs> it was no style. It was just being you. I have to talk with you about the interview with Sade. Um, she's a favorite of mine. She's a favorite of so many. Oh, yeah. But before we get to your historic interview with Sade, let's listen to a snatch from a song from around the time of your chat. This is Cherry Pie from Sade's debut album, 1984's Diamond Life, one of my favorite albums of all time. I love her language in Cherry Pie. 
I mean, it was co-written by Sade and the whole squad was on point. Paul Spencer Denman, Andrew Hale, Stuart Matthewman, because we all have that person, right? We all know that person, that one who's, as she sings, sweet as cherry pie, yet wild as Friday night. The way she sings that, gotta find out what I meant to you, gotta find out what I meant to you. How is she singing like that? And this was her debut. Sade rarely speaks, as we know. She just doesn't come outside to play that often. It was her, the interview that I'm referring to is probably one of her first interviews stateside. It was her first, not one of, it was her see, first. See, see, I in knew. The US. Yes. Okay, yeah. so now let's listen to you speaking with Sade in 1985. You guys almost look like college students. And in this particular clip, you two were talking about her style, the way she presents to the world. The way that you're presented, your image is such a sultry one, a kind of a sex symbol, uh, if you will. Is that Sharday? Uh, Sharday just like simple clothes, really. I don't like. In fact, I think if you if you're a sex symbol, you have to like um, glittery gowns and sequins, and I don't like that. So, in a way, I'm a bit of a misfit, I suppose. <laughs> I couldn't possibly be a sex symbol if I didn't like uh, sequins and stuff. I guess so. Ooh. But sometimes the public can give you that image and it may not be one that you necessarily want. Is it, yeah. do you mind? No, I think people, people always take you as they, as they see you, not necessarily as you are. I mean, in every situation, you know, whether you're, you're a singer or, you know, you're working mm-hmm. in a shop and you're meeting people, they, they take you for what they think you are. So that's inevitable. They take you for what they think you are, she says. Mm. Okay, so listen, Donnie Simpson, you and Sade, and this set that you guys were sitting on, I mean, it looked like my grandmother's chair, like (laughs) Trudy's aunt's table. I mean, it just looked like, did we bring lighting? I don't know. Like, and you and Sade, yes, and wait, I love this part here where you ask her about the idea of what money means to an artist and also about how jazz influences her work. I read somewhere where you um, said that money isn't important to you. Um, Can that be true? I no, mean, that's just... not true. That isn't true. I, I lied. Money, money, <laughs> I'm a liar. Don't trust me. Maybe for great public relations, though. <laughs> no. Money, money is important, but it isn't the first thing that's important. I mean, it's not the thing that motivates me. It isn't, it isn't number one. Number one is people and um, caring for people and, and, and people caring for me. That's number one. Number two is the music we're making. And number three is getting some rewards from it, if you like. I mean, I don't actually evaluate it like that and mm-hmm. write in a little book, but um, it's not the thing that motivates me and drives me. That isn't the thing. It's, it's making something that uh, has quality and, and something that is lasting. And then if you get money from that, and we do our best to expose it, and we will, if, if money comes from that, then that's great. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not complaining. 
You mentioned the word quality, and I have to say that that is one word that describes your new album very well. It's a very different sound, very jazz-oriented kind of thing. Um, why do you think that that can be successful now? I mean, we've been in an era of dance music, and this is something, it's a, it's a lot slower. It's mm -hmm. a, a more adult-feeling, more sophisticated sound. Do you think that can be a commercial success? Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I personally, I listen to a lot of improvised jazz, and so does Stuart, the uh, Mattyman, who I co-write the songs with. But um, that probably colours it and influences it slightly, like, you know, the way both of us phrase, when, like when I play and when he sings, and the way we arrange the songs. But I wouldn't say it was jazz. I would say, first of all, what we're doing was soul, really, because they're songs about people, and they're just songs, that maybe in the old-fashioned sense, because they've got a story to them and a beginning and an end, and not really too many gimmicks. That in, that's that trademark Donnie Simpson enthusiasm. So do tell me, what is your favorite Sade song? Maureen. <laughs> Why? Why? I just, I, the feel of that song is just, you know, Maureen. You know the song, right? I miss you, girl. I miss you. You know, you wore a rent-a-car in a, you, what was, what's the line? You were souped-up car in a rent-a-car town or a rent-a-car, something like that. Yes. Just, it was just. She sings, you were a souped-up car in that rent-a-go-kart town. I just love those lyrics, you know, um, and it was just. Black girl friendship. You know, I, I don't know if Maureen was black or white. We don't. You know, yes. It, yeah. Uh, but it could have been anybody. It's just a song about friendship, a deep, deep friendship. And I just always love that song. And just the vibe of it is just such a cool groove to me. Why did I always think that one of your favorites was Vesta? I, I love Vesta. Vesta. Oh, man. Oh, my God. I love that woman. Same. Vesta is a fave of my whole family, especially this one. So don't you believe I'm That's Vesta's Don't Blow a Good Thing from 1986. Vesta was born in Ohio and raised in Los Angeles. Four octave range. Vesta used to sing backup for everyone from Shaka Khan to Stephanie Mills to Gladys Knight to Sting to... Well, you know, she used to sit in for me sometimes on Video Soul. Okay. And I, I loved her because of her personality more than anything. Great personality. She had her struggles too, though. I remember she told Ebony back in the day, quote, and I'm quoting Vesta Williams here. She said, when I lost my record deal and my phone wasn't ringing, I realized that I had to reassess who Vesta was and figure out what was going wrong. Still quoting her. I knew it wasn't my singing ability. So it had to be that I was expendable because I didn't have the right look, end quote. Vesta Williams echoes so many Black women singers from Kelly Price on down with just this very specific kind of heartbreak. And, and I'm telling you, I, I call her name quite frequently 
uh, every day before I do my radio show, and I say a little quick prayer, preach old prayer, and uh, and then I ask the Lord to say hello to two people every day. It's, I mean, different people, but always a male and a female. Sometimes it may be James and Aretha. It may be, you know, but quite often it, it could be Prince and Vesta, <laughs> you know, uh, just people that have gone on. You know, I want to, I don't know, I just feel like those spirits will help me through that show. You know, I just, and I just want to say hi to them. You know, I, um, Vesta was awesome. You two had such good talks. Let's listen in. <laughs> but it's got to be kind of tough to perform like that. It is. That's why my first album, uh, it's good. Yeah. And I'm not knocking it, but it could have been better, you know, had the, had the energy been positive. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because you kind of felt like you you did it under duress, huh? I, I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not no kind of. No I did. <laughs> you know, that, that sometimes um, people don't work well under that Napoleonic yeah. type of um, handling. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You have to let some butterflies be free. Yeah. And I like to flutter. Yeah, right. You gotta yeah. let me be free. <laughs> I would assume that that's uh, one of the ingredients in the making of a good producer. Uh, yeah. To realize that, that mm-hmm. you can't come in like Napoleon with all artists. It, mm-hmm. Some artists are different. Some respond to that, others yeah, don't. Some you need to do that because that's the only way you can get anything out of them. Mm-hmm. But when you have somebody that's bursting with emotion, that wants to give it, you need to be able to know how to reciprocate and, and, you know, and just and get that, pull that out and draw from it and allow that to flow. You have mm-hmm. to be able to know that. But you have to go to a level of maturity to mm-hmm. do that. It's too sad. Vesta died in 2011 in Southern California. It's tragic that she died so young. She was 53 years old. At the time of her obituaries, it was being written that she might have died of a drug overdose. And I think this is because her body was found in an El Segundo. El Segundo's like a suburb of Los Angeles. Her body was found in an El Segundo, California hotel room. But when the autopsy was final, it revealed that Vesta's death at the age of just 53 was due to complications of an enlarged heart. So like an enlarged heart, like that organ that makes everything happen in our body, that pumps the blood through our body, that organ that is like tied to how we feel about everything. Oh, I learned it by heart. Oh, you're my heart. Oh, I heart you. Oh, So when I hear that she died of an enlarged heart, which from my understanding can go undetected for years and years, when I think of that diagnosis, I think Vesta's heart was perhaps just a bit too big for this world, literally and metaphorically. You can hear it in her voice. I want us to listen in full. To Vesta's biggest hit, Congratulations, from 1986. She co-wrote the song. It's her biggest hit. It went to number 55 on the pop charts. And the rumor was, back in the day, that Congratulations was about Bruce Willis. Yes, Die Hard 
Bruce Willis. That rumor, woo, and I remember an interview, Donnie Simpson, that you did with Vesta about just this. You know, I also heard a rumor that you were going out with Bruce Willis. Baby, you know, I had never even met that man. <laughs> Is that right? The lies people tell. Isn't that something how rumors get started? Yeah. Hmm. A rumor like that one is difficult to kill, though, especially as the quote-unquote wedding that takes place in the song Congratulations is supposed to be the wedding of Bruce Willis to his now ex-wife, Demi Moore. What? Scandal. This is the magic, though. We so often want a real story because the emotion conveyed in a song is just that powerful. I mean, sometimes there are real life situations. Gladys Knight has said many times that she's thinking about her ex-husband her first husband when she's singing Midnight Train to Georgia. But way more oftentimes, it's people, it's women, it's black women just reaching into their souls and doing the work of conveying feelings that we ourselves hesitate to dredge up. We hesitate to dredge it up. Scared to be happy or mad to be sad. We hesitate to dredge it up without music. And so often the music of Black women to assist us, to help us get in touch with our own emotions. They tell us stories. Think of Nancy Wilson's Guess Who I Saw Today, Billy Paul's Me and Mrs. Jones. That's a whole story. We meet every day at the same cafe. Think of Adele's Someone Like You. Ooh, I can't even listen to that song sometimes. When she says, I heard that your dreams came true? No, I can't do it with her. I can't. Vesta's congratulations is the story of heartbreak. It's the story of romantic love that did not or will not work. In the song, she's actually saying congratulations to her ex on his wedding day. Let's just listen to a little snatch of Vesta's epic congratulations. That's a song right there. Okay, but wait, did you not go on the road with Janet Jackson during her Rhythm Nation tour? And did you participate in a pre-show prayer with her? Or did you, what was it? No. I didn't go on the road with her, but, you know, I would run into Janet on the road somewhere and she invited me to be a part of their pre-show prayer. I did the same thing with Earth, Wind and Fire once. And, I mean, and that was just so amazing to me. I mean, it just, you know, it just made me feel so blessed to know that you care enough about me to allow me to be a part of something so special. Yes. Is your pre-show prayer where everyone's gathered around in prayer and they asked me to be a part of that. What, what an amazing experience for me. Um, 
But Janet, yeah, I mean, Janet, we, I would run into her and Michael on the road. I probably saw Michael in like five, six different places. I would just happen to be in the city and go see him. Uh, but me and Janet did a special two-hour video soul from her stage. And maybe that's what makes you think we did something. Yeah, we had so much time. We spent that whole day together. You know, it's yeah. so rare for any journalist, let alone a black journalist, to spend that much time with a pop star of Janet Jackson's magnitude. And I'm not saying that like it's yeah. a good thing. I'm saying it like that's just facts. And I and I think about you asking her about about performing in Birmingham, Alabama, and her mm-hmm. talking about what that was like for her, you know, with all the civil rights history and stuff that went down, obviously, with Martin Luther King in in Birmingham and how amazing it was for her to see the audience just being so free and integrated. Maybe I should ask you your favorite, one of your favorite interviews of all time. It could be oh, recent wow. or it could be from long ago. Hurt feelings, Donnie Simpson. Put your feelings gone. Be enthusiastic and tell us. No, I mean, there's so many, you know. Uh, my boy Smokey immediately comes to mind. You know, I love Smokey Robinson mm. and Smokey. Uh, I, to this day, to this day, I can't believe we're friends. You know what I mean? It's like it's Smokey Robinson. It's, it's Smokey yeah, Robinson. This guy that I grew up, you know, I used to go to the Motown Review at the Fox Theater in Detroit and sit there. And I'm just like, I couldn't believe. I was so in love with everybody that came on that stage. And Smokey just had all the girls melting. I wanted to be that guy. Well, like, well Donnie, you guy. guys both have these magical eyes. Can we discuss yeah. these gray okay. eyes, these green <laughs> eyes, these little magical eyes? Talk. That's, is that why you and Smokey yeah. Robinson are friends, Donnie Simpson? No. Maybe, well, maybe that's one of the reasons. But our <laughs> reasons for friendship are much Deeper, than, Deeper that. than that. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're from the same cloth, you know. Smokey's, uh, Smokey's one of the most down to earth people you will ever meet. You know, and it's been my experience, Danielle, that the bigger they are, the more down to earth they are. Mm. You know, it's the, those who are on the second rung of the ladder trying to prove they belong on top <laughs> that tend to trip. Those. <laughs> On that top line, you already know. You, you see me laughing know. because I'm trying not to agree too hard. That's what I, but but yeah. I do know what you mean. So you and Smokey Robinson, I mean, such a legend all the way back to, of course, songs like Tears of a Clown. But even recently, you know, in the song with Anderson Pack. His career, too, just spans the decades. Yes. It's, it's what a career. I mean, he's still at it. Looking great, 82 years Ooh. old. Uh, Frankie Beverly, another one. I mean, that's my boy. Well, Frankie, the first time, I think it was the first time he was on Video Soul. Yeah. After the show, we're sitting there talking. We're in a conference room and we're talking. And Frankie's telling me uh, that they're getting ready to go to London. I said, really? He says, I've never been to London. He said, well, we're so big there. We're, we're bigger than the Beatles. You know, and I go, yeah, right. I'm like, yeah, he must be drinking. <laughs> bigger than the Beatles in London. Right. He says, and I said something to that effect to him, you know, you know, he says, no, I'm serious, man. 
You should come see. I said, okay, well, let's go. Mm. So me and my Pam, me and my wife, Pam, went to London with Frankie. It's our first trip to Europe. We get there. It was the most amazing experience. Everywhere you went. I mean, this is the first day. Everywhere we went, all the radio stations are just playing maze. Just nonstop. Around what you know, year was had, this? Around what year was this? This would have been like 85, probably. 84, 85. Uh, I had two guys stop me. We're just shopping. We're in stores and guys come up to me. Yeah, going to see Maze? They don't even know me. Going to see Maze? Got my ticket. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was great. He sold out the Hammersmith Odeon, which is about 4,500 seats, 17 nights. Mm. 17 nights. Mm. It was, un- and the other thing, unlike here in the U.S., where, you know, for the most part, white folks don't know Frankie Beverly and May. It's true. There, the audience was 85% white. Oh, man. It was, and, and all ages, from 8 to 80. I mean, and what this is the what this is the stand, this is the what the can't stop the love era. This is the back in stride again. This is back in stride. Yes, back in stride again. Stride again. Yes. We 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 followed him from there to uh, Paris and. He did one night there, 10,000 people sold out. No one speaks English. Everyone's singing back in stride again. Mm. You know, I mean, it, it was it was just the coolest experience for me. So I love that. Um, favorites. Aretha, of course. Talk I mean, to me. Oh, my God. Aretha. I, I cannot possibly tell you how much I love that woman. You know, I well, I can almost can show you. I know one of the most viewed moments. On Video Soul was when uh, we did a two-hour special from her house. Mm. And uh, I'm sitting there at the piano with her, and she starts playing Curtis Mayfield. It's such a moment. The Makings of You. I was just wondering if I could get you to play a little bit of that. Of The the Makings of of You? Yes. Are you going to sing it? Oh, no, not with you sitting here. (laughs) Come on, sing sing one or two lines. You know the first line? Uh Okay. I know when to come in. You have to help me. Now, add a little sugar. And just a little more sugar. Honeysuckle in. Right. Honeysuckle in. Oh, but I can't do it. A great big expression. Uh, 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 oh, wait, wait, wait. Great big expression. It's such a moment. Here's a bit of the recorded version from 1994. It was on a Curtis Mayfield tribute album from about five years before he died. Yeah, just a little more sugar, Honey, suckle in. And I just started crying. 
I just started crying. It's- there was so much in that moment for me. It was, here is the greatest voice I've ever heard in my life singing one-on-one to me in my ear. I'm sitting on the queen's throne. This is, I mean, I, you know, I'm from Detroit, man. The queen, I mean, she was truly like a queen to me, you know, and I'm sitting here and, and I don't know how I got here. You know what I mean? I, I'm not worthy. How? It, it was just too much for me. It was just too much. There's a reason why you say you're not worthy. I don't know that that's true because there's a reason why we all want to see what happens when Donnie Simpson interviews somebody. We want that energy. We want that. It, there's no cynicism attached. There's no, um, yeah. it doesn't seem like everything that we do, of course, is work, is labor. It is those things. But when we see you speaking to someone, it does very much look like they just ran into each other at the bar or in the parking lot of the church. And they're just catching up and talking yeah. about what they both love. And I guess just to go back a little bit, how were you raised? Like, was your family very about like, we're all going to be extremely charming <laughs> or like, <laughs> what, what was the rule in your household? Like, how is it that you, like, if someone says, Danielle, how did you come by your personality? I would say, well, you know, I'm from Oakland, so I'm a little bit rough around the edges, but I love music so much. There's not an insincere bone in my body about music. You know, I was raised yeah. to say please and thank you. Like, what What was what was your life like when you were becoming Donnie Simpson? Yeah, well, you know, it's so interesting that you asked me that because I was just talking to my mom. Well, Friday, no, Saturday morning, I talked to my mom. and. Um, I was telling her about something I had just written. My, my, song, my son gave me this uh, thing for Father's Day. It's called Story Word. And what you do, it, once a week, they send you a subject. Uh, and it's a question, generally. And you respond to it. You write out whichever one to write. If you want to put photos with it, you can do that. And then in one year's time, they turn it into a book mm. for your family. And... Uh, so I was telling my mom how the question that particular day was, or week, was who influenced you in your childhood? And of course, I put, you know, I said mom and dad, of course, but then I went from there to James Brown, Curtis Mayfield, you know, those guys who taught me black pride, you know, uh, Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X and uh, 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 one of Dr. King, who taught me to stand tall, you know, and who I am. And again, that black pride. But then on the music side, I listed Aretha Franklin, James Brown, Smokey Robinson, and anybody from Motown. Uh, but I also talked about a guy named Mr. Harris. You wouldn't know Mr. Harris, you know, but he was the guy. He came into my mother's record shop almost every day. And he was the Watkins man. It was the home care products, lotion and hair, shampoo, and, you know, just different stuff, mm-hmm. you know, but he was so nice 
and kind and classy. And he, all these years later, I still think about him just because he was so kind. I talked about the radio influences, in particular, a guy named Ken Bell who used to sneak me in at night, let me record. He would critique my tapes and stuff. You know, I mean, to take that kind of time for a 15-year-old kid, that, that I never forgot that. That helped to shape me to, to know that you have to take time for people. That even if it's an inconvenience, because someone took time for me, and look what happened because of that, you know? Um, and I talked about this other guy named Ernie D and this is what I'm really getting to. This guy was the biggest DJ in Detroit, Ernie D the king of cookery cooking on my stoves of two. One is electric. One is gas. Put them together. They are set to blast. You know, I I really cannot. Oh my. So these are your influences. Oh my goodness. Yeah. He was so great. And then I talked about his influence on me that it wasn't in terms of radio style, but in terms of lifestyle, Mm. because off air, he was the nicest guy. So kind. Again, biggest DJ in Detroit, but everybody that he met was one-on-one. He was engaged. That was the guy that I wanted to be. He was so classy and elegant. He was just... Everything that I wanted to be as a man, he represented to me. Our on radio styles, on air styles, are completely the opposite. You know, I'm laid back, man. I'm, I'm Snoop. Yes, and big. I was going to say, you know? very much in the cut is Donnie <laughs> right. Simpson. Very much no in the doubt. cut. No doubt. But I wanted to be that engaging, caring, loving person, you know? And, um, so, you know, and, and, and then I went on to further to tell my mom that how much she influenced me. There was a woman that she used to look out for. Her name was Ruby McClendon. Ruby was blind. My mother got in touch with her because of my mother's involvement in the Helping Hand Club at her church. And this woman needed help sometimes with different things. My mom became that person. She'd come go shopping for Ruby, go to the cleaners, whatever Ruby needed done. My mother would handle these things for her. And we were always in tow as little kids. I mean, eight, nine, 10 years old. And I was telling my mom how that that is the reason that I go down the street to shovel the snow for this 85-year-old couple that lives down the road. Because I saw what you did, not because you told me to do that. But because I saw it, mm-hmm. that that's what you do, you know? So that's why I am who I am because of my mom. You know, my mom started crying when I was telling her that. I, said, I can't believe I've never said that to you. So no, just, but you know. It's so good that you did say that to oh, her though. I know. And she's 92 now, by the way. Oh, God uh, bless Just her. as sharp as can be. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think that it's a combination of all these people that make you who you are. And the greatest influence, I guess, is the person that put you here is God. You know, I think that, you know, I wonder about that sometimes. Is it all these influences or are you just who God put you here to be? You know, I don't know. I think it's a combination. It's a common. I I believe it's a combination because I believe that God puts us around those people. 
Yeah. That's when you say I'm blessed to know the people that I know. I'm I'm blessed to know the people that I know. Um, I'm blessed to be able to maintain those relationships in the way that I was raised to do. And it's so clear to me just what you're saying and by the way you're saying it, that you have not just obviously a spiritual relationship with God. You said you wanted to be a Baptist minister for a while, but you also have a spiritual relationship with music. Oh, yeah. It's in your soul. Oh, without doubt. There's nothing that makes me cry more than music. And and I don't mean to sound like a... No, but I'm the same. No, you don't sound like anything. I can sit here and listen listen to music and I cry. And and it's not because it's sad. It can be up to... Yes. It's because it's so good. Because it's so good. It's so good. It's It's so good. It is. It really is. And I can, it's beautiful to me because I can concurrently hear the work and the effort and then not hear or feel the work and the effort at all. Yeah. 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 Right. (laughs) Wow. I really do. I, I just really. I can only bow down in some ways. I mean, I'm here to interrogate as well as celebrate always. But when that kind of, I don't know, magic, that word is overused. When that kind of sparkle, that kind of whatever it is, man, I just feel, as you do, I feel very blessed to do what I do. Let me ask, speaking of all this history, I'm just wondering. So you really did come of age in Detroit during the time of Motown. And here we are right now in 2022. And obviously music has gone through so much. I can think of the times of you being in movies like Crush Groove and things like that. I remember all these things. But I'm wondering if you just look at the business side for a second and say, especially in radio, you know, obviously radio started out as a very segregated space, you know, in our culture, Black radio, pop radio, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just wondering, is it different now? Or or what do you see? Like when you just look back and say, okay, 1970, and then you say 2020, it's 50 years. What what are you what are you seeing? Well, for me, I mean, in terms of radio, I mean, my biggest pet peeve is the uh, lack of freedom that jocks have. You know, I still call them. I'm, I'm still a DJ. I know they went through changes. Well, I'm an air personality, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so whatever, whatever you are, it's cool with me. But, um, you know, I grew up in a time when, you know, show prep for me was thumbing through my album saying, man, I'm going to play this tonight. I'm going to play this, I'm gonna, you know, and playing whatever I wanted to play. And it's always been that way for me. It's not that way for radio today. And I hate that. I, you know, I, I just feel that there are so many young people out there with great ears who will never have a chance to express themselves musically, you know, mm. and, and, that, and that bothers me, you know, uh, that's part of the creative to me. You know, it's not just what I say, it's what I play. It's a whole experience. And that's a part of it. Yes. What we're really saying right now is that is that there are program directors for better and for worse and yeah. radio conglomerates that pretty much based on 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 data, they choose which songs are going to be played and how often they're going to be played. Whereas back in the day, uh, people like Donnie Simpson and other great DJs would 
pick the records themselves, depending on what they like, depending on the mood of the day, the mood of the city, all of that. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a look out the window kind of guy. I need to feel this day. You know, when I'm doing a show, you know, if it's sunny, whatever it is, every day is different and there's something in it, some spirit that exists that connects us all. And I need to tap into that, you know, and I'm so blessed that still I get to do that. You know, that's how I do my show. If, or if I'm playing a song, go, wow. Oh my God. I, you know what I should, I'm hearing this behind this. I, this would go perfect here. Let's drop Stevie. It's too late. Um, whatever. And, mm-hmm. and, and my guys, my producers know that about me. So they, yes. how long we got? 15 seconds. Can you get it up? Yes. Do that. <laughs> you know, yes. that's the way I work. Just off the cuff like that. You know, uh, l- let me tell you a quick story. I'll try to make it quick anyway. Um, but back in Detroit, again, I mentioned my guy, Claude Young, the big soul rocker who was my closest friend in radio and still is my boy to this day. But we, we used, he's a guy who turned me on Elton John. So I'm sitting here listening to this Elton John album. And every night I'm listening to this. I'm telling Claude about this song that I love. The one particular song, Benny and the Jets. Yes. And uh, but I said, man, I want to play this song. But I was scared because black folks didn't know Elton. So I went through that for a week. Finally, mm-hmm. I played it. And the night I played it on my show in Detroit, I played it twice. The reason I played it the second time was because the phone were jumping off the hook from the first time. But Benny it and the Jets. Yes. It was something I had never seen before nor since. It was so instant. It was so huge. The, the DJ who did the morning show the next morning wakes me up at home the next morning at 730. What is this song you played last night? Jenny and the Nets or something. Man, you got to bring that down here. They're blowing his phones up. Mm. I had to get in the car, take it down to him. It, two days later, Elton is on the phone from London. He calls. What is this? I hear Benny and the Jets is breaking black in Detroit. Seven months later, he comes to Detroit, pre- has his press conference, presents me with a gold record. For, it, to this day, is one of the Amazing. biggest moments of my career. Amazing. It was just, the, the, the reason I bring it up is because that moment cannot happen in today's environment, you know? And that's sad to me because you don't have the freedom to sit there and listen and go, I'm going to play this. Look what happened because of that freedom that I had, how that blew up into such a huge moment for him and for me, you know, it was, it was just, he ends up on soul train to perform, Mm -hmm. you know? Yes. And uh, so, you know, I'm a big proponent of freedom and I feel that uh, employers, would be amazed at what they can get from people when you allow them to sign their name to it. I believe you're you right. Know? But, but, but Donnie Simpson, do you think that the pendulum is ever going to swing back or are there spaces that you see in culture where it's even happening? Like I think about what you're doing now on Tubi. I think about, you know, what people are doing with shows like this, with, with playlists and stuff. like, do you see any place where, people's taste is being elevated in the way yours was back in those days? Well, I hope so. You know, um, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring back video soul. 
mm-hmm. uh, why I started my podcast and a podcast mm-hmm. network yes. um, was because I wanted to create, you know, it's not just about getting me back, uh, you know, on video soul. That's the first thing we need to do that first to establish it. But then I want to create other shows for other people. And, and that will be the moment that I really rejoice in when I have my second show up and I'm not in front of the camera. Mm. That's what I look forward to because it's about creating that freedom for others, for me, you know, and it's about ownership too. You know, I, um, you know, I, I mentioned my mother and father, but I, I never had that entrepreneurial chip that they had that my oldest brother was a millionaire at the age of 25 or something. He was the biggest black record retailer in the country. Mm. And, uh, you know, but I never had that chip. And so now I'm trying to develop it. Um, and I want to thank Bob Johnson, who has been very instrumental in helping me and consulting mm-hmm. me, uh, mm-hmm. trying to develop these chops. You know, I, again, how lucky am I to have the world's first black billionaire <laughs> assisting me in this, you know? Yes. Uh, so truly, truly, truly. You blessed. helped him along but, but the way, though, Donnie Simpson. You well, helped him along the way. <laughs> Well, and if nobody's told you, Black Girl Songbook is here to give credit where credit is due. And well, as much Bob, as we Bob's all love BET, listen, as much as we all did and do love Black entertainment television for so long, and still, I think, in many ways, your name is synonymous with that brand. Yeah. It absolutely yeah. is, and I think always will be so it is man listen to have don (laughs) miss mr simpson as as the kids tell me you're gonna take this love today donnie simpson because it's true (laughs) (laughs) it is absolutely true and when i think let me embarrass you right before we um close our interview that we're so blessed to have when i think of your voice, your smile, the the thing always about your eyes, the enthusiasm, the constant commitment to excellence, the joy and it that you find in music, the 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 tangible just interest that you have in artists and the work that they create. We're blessed to have you. We're blessed that you're starting this network and wow. we thank you for joining us on Black Girl Samba. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much, Danielle. I really appreciate everything you said. And I do accept it. Good. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes. Thanks for having me. Of it, course. It really has been an, an honor. A real treat. God bless you and all that you do. The thing about Black Girl Songbook is... This is the place where Black women in music receive the credit that we are due. It's hard to decide. We, you know, we think about it. We talk about it. Who, who are we going to highlight? And there's so many Black women whose stories need to be told. And then you have somebody like Donnie Simpson, a man, obviously. It's like, so why is Donnie Simpson kicking it on Black Girl Songbook, one, because he's a historic figure in Black music and pop music and radio, as we've discussed. He's in halls of fame, not even just like one. 
But it's also because of the energy that you've heard in, in these interviews that he conducts with Black women. I've listened to so many interviews between Black women artists and male hosts or interviewers or DJs. And some of them are fine. Some rise to the level of great, but not that many. So often people just don't listen to what the answers are. And Donnie Simpson is focused. He's focused on the artist, the Black woman artist's personality, her work, her style, how she just feels about life and creativity. He has jokes. He has humility. He's a part of our lives. As much as Don Cornelius or Arsenio Hall or any of those black male hosts that were just on the, the big screen in the front room, guiding us through the worlds of black music. So we are thrilled to have Mr. Donnie Simpson on Black Girl Songbook. And I'm also excited that Donnie Simpson's video soul is streaming on Tubi. It's like, is it Tubi? Is it Tubby? Wherever, whatever it is, Donnie Simpson's video soul is streaming there. He continues to do great work. What a fabulous conversation. I'm feeling super excited about it. I have a lot to feel excited about. My book is out, Shine Bright, a very personal history of Black Women in Pop is available wherever you purchase your favorite books, wherever you download your favorite audiobooks. And I did narrate uh, the audiobook of Shine Bright, so it's out there. These are wild times we're living in, but I'm trying to get right on through it, as I know you are, with a lot of help from music. And you know that I'm always on Twitter and Instagram always doing the most, sharing a little bit of life, a little bit of culture, and a little bit of music whenever I can. My name on both platforms is Danamo, D-A-N-A-M-O. Team Black Girl Songbook is a brilliant ringer crew. They keep this whole situation moving along quite smoothly, episode by episode, chapter by chapter. We have producer Trudy Joseph, Audio producer, Donnie Beecham. Story consultant, Taj Rani. And DJ Steve Porter is on sound design. Our talent booker is Allison Turner. And on additional production supervision, we have Juliet Littman and Chelsea Stark-Jones. Amanda Long is our publicist. And Sean Finnessy is always nearby with advice and plenty of encouragement. Black Girl Songbook is here for you on Spotify, but it's always now available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And you know, we always have a song for you on the way out. Before we play Phyllis Hyman, you have to listen to a little bit of Donnie Simpson speaking to her. And after that, and God bless the dead, Miss Hyman is another one. Gone too soon, gone too young. So let's listen to Donnie Simpson talking to her. And then we're going to listen to just a snatch of Phyllis Hyman's You Know How to Love Me 
from 1979. We were talking earlier about the packaging of artists and how they're picking up kids off the street, pretty much. The producers are producing these records. These kids have little or no talent. They look right. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, get a girl, get the hair weave on there and make her lose 30 pounds. You got a hit record. Can't sing a lick. Can't sing a note. Now, now, how does that make you feel, though, Phyllis, as an artist? I mean, who's worked so hard for so many years, and you are an artist. I mean, you sing. It, can you say this on the air? It pisses me off. I think you can. It makes me big time <laughs> you angry. You just said it. <laughs> it makes me big time angry because of the fact that I have spent so many years developing this talent and working very hard at it. And then I realized sometimes some parts of the industry, they're only interested in quick results, mm -hmm. instant results. They get these artists, and these artists are thrown away afterwards. They think they're, they're on the road to their big break. You hear from them this year, you don't hear from them anymore. That's very but true. They're being used, and they're being discarded. You and I.